This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. In earlier periods of Christian history, the Psalms were the songbook of the church and they were familiar enough to most Christians to serve as a way of expressing the Christian struggle with sin, dying to sin and being renewed in the image of Christ. Today, the Psalter has become less familiar, but that unfamiliarity does not mean that the Psalms themselves have changed. They remain, as Calvin said, an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there is not one emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror, or rather, the Holy Spirit has drawn to the life of all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Here to serve as our tour guide back to the Psalms as a model for the Christian struggle with and for sanctity is Dr. Brian Estelle. He's professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He's been a pastor in Maryland and Oregon and is the author of Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, The Gospel According to Jonah. This and other faculty titles is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, WS. C-A-L dot E-D-U slash bookstore. This is part two of our discussion with Brian Estelle. There's another class of psalms in the Psalter, and it's among the more difficult class of psalms, and those are the imprecatory psalms. First of all, let's define our terms. What is an imprecation? Well, an imprecation is to denounce someone else, to pronounce a curse on someone else, or to wish that they get their comeuppance according to God's standard of justice. And there's a good bit of that in the Psalter. So we should address that and be honest about that. That's in the Word of God. It's in there. And the Psalms are God's Word. You know, I appreciate C.S. Lewis's little book on the Psalms, but he really wrestles with this, and, and he doesn't get this right. He wants to basically excise the imprecatory Psalms from the Psalter because they're not worthy of the Christian. But this is God's inspired Word, and so we do need to wrestle with this honestly. And, of course, Perhaps the most beloved of the imprecatory psalms, at least for Reformed people, is Psalm 68, because this is the Huguenot psalm. Our people sang this psalm as they were being led to the slaughter in the 16th century. And again, just to refresh the listener's memory, I'll just read a little bit from Psalm 68. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away, as wax melts before fire. So the wicked shall perish before God, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Well, that gives us a flavor of Psalm 68. What should Christians do with imprecatory psalms, and how do they speak to the Christian struggle with our enemies, sin, the flesh, and the devil? Well, this is a very current topic and very timely. There are 
ministers who believe that we should in no ways sing the imprecatory psalms because of the nature of the apparent vindication that is going forth there. Let me state a few principles about the imprecatory psalms that I think help frame the issue, and then maybe answer your question with regards to how can a Christian pray these, how can a Christian sing these even in worship? Which we used to do, and which sometimes we still do, right? Even as I was reading that, I could hear the congregation singing a setting of Psalm 68. I won't do it. <laughs> I won't do it here, but maybe a listener is hearing that and also hearing a familiar, famous, and ancient setting of Psalm 68 in their ears or in their head. Thank you, Scott, for sparing us by not singing this. <laughs> I will spare our listeners definitely how much more so that I not sing that. So this is actually our president's favorite psalm. Psalm 68 is. There are at least 18 other places in the Psalter where you have lines, small lines, or you have large sections that are imprecations. So this is a major issue to reflect upon. Let me state a couple principles first, and then we'll answer the question, how should Christians think about how they ought to handle the imprecatory Psalms? First of all, there is a very good article, a classic article written by Chalmers Martin, where he set forth the following four principles on the imprecatory psalms. First, they are the expression of the longing of an Old Testament saint for the vindication of God's righteousness. Secondly, they are the utterances of zeal for God and God's kingdom. And C.S. Lewis got that right, that point at least. Third, these fierce-sounding utterances are an Old Testament saint's expression of his abhorrence for sin. And that's true, too. In fact, sometimes they put us to shame insofar as they recognize the gravity of sin against an all-holy God. Fourth, they are prophetic teachings as to the attitude of God towards sin and impenitent and persistent sinners. Now, those are good principles, and I think it's also helpful to think along the lines of intrusion ethics. Let me explain that quickly, if I may. This grows out of Gerhardus Voss's teaching and Meredith Hines' extension of Gerhardus Voss's teaching. Basically, it says this, that when we read these kinds of imprecations in the Psalms, we're seeing a reflection of the kingdom of God intruded into earthly space in real history. It's very interesting seeing how biblical scholars wrestle with these imprecatory psalms because often in the secular academy or in the biblical guild, they think it's a mere reflection of Israel being behind the times savages. They haven't ethically progressed to the place where they can state and declare the same kind of ethical high water ground, if you will, that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. But insofar as they say that, they really have not understood what theocratic Israel is all about. Theocratic Israel is a picture, if you will, of the kingdom to come. It is a holy space. And the fact of the matter is that God intrudes into the earthly sphere there a picture of what heaven is actually going to look like or what it's going to look like when Christ comes back with all his holy angels and flanked by all believers in order to set all things right, thy kingdom come. And so 
the Israelites were not behind the times. They were actually, if we understand the hermeneutics of the text correctly, they were ahead of the times. And so I don't know how else to handle that. And we teach our students around here that, you know, Joshua becomes a type of Christ because if he's fulfilling a command by God to go in and raise cities to the ground and slaughter even children and women in some cases as they did in Canaan, well, that's no Geneva Convention. (laughs) And so unless we handle that according to a notion of this is a picture of what it will look like at the end of time when the kingdom of God becomes all in all and absolute holiness reigns and the demands of justice become absolute at that point, we begin to see that this is a picture that looks forward. This is a typology that's looking to the end of time. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. It's not as if, is it, that our Lord Jesus didn't utter imprecations and warnings about future judgment, right? That's absolutely right. So you can't set Jesus as sort of one moral high water over against the sort of allegedly sub-Christian Psalms, right, like Psalm 68. Yeah, let me give you an example. So Psalm 109 is often considered an imprecatory psalm. And Psalm 109 is quoted in Acts 121. Now, Psalm 109 is difficult. I'm going to concede that. And I'm even going to say something our readers may not be familiar with. But it all hinges on our analysis of the pronouns in that psalm. You have to understand, are the imprecations in that psalm the representation of what the enemies are saying against the psalmist? That's one view. But another view is to understand that these These are genuine imprecations on the part of the psalmist against God's enemies. And that's more often than not the view that's taken the latter one. Now, if that's the case, and if Jesus is the ultimate psalm singer, which we want to affirm around here in our hermeneutics of the psalms, then how does Jesus sing these imprecations, so to speak? So if we understand Psalm 109 this way, and verse 8, as quoted in Acts 121, as Dick Belcher, a colleague at Reformed Theological Seminary, writes, it would be his, that is, Christ's appeal to God to deliver him from such bloodthirsty people and save him from death. It would be also his words of curse against members of the covenant community who reject him. Such curses would be especially applicable to Judas, who betrayed Jesus into the hands of those who put him to death. And that seems to be the use of Psalm 109, verse 8 in Acts 121. So we see our Lord, as you said earlier, indeed does take these imprecations upon his own lips, but they need to be interpreted according to what I call the hermeneutical horizon of the person who's singing it. Now, what I mean by that is what they mean for a New Testament Christian would we read these psalms, pray these psalms, and sing these psalms, hopefully, may have some adjustment, if you will, or fuller meaning, given our present posture and stance in the new covenant horizon in which we are. So when we pray these psalms, the easiest way, I think, to communicate this to members in the church is you're essentially praying what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We are zealous for your kingdom to come. We want your kingdom to come. Well, let me read Belcher again, because Belcher is so good here, and he concludes with some thoughts on how a Christian ought to pray these imprecations, and then by way of extension, we could say a kind of mental posture attitude we ought to have when we sing these psalms. Although God's people will experience, like Jesus, persecution and suffering, 
The goal is to live for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. We pray for the conversion of our enemies, but it is also legitimate that we pray for the destruction of those who violently oppose the kingdom of Christ. In this way, it is appropriate for God's people today use the psalm of imprecation, not for personal revenge. Let me pause for a minute. See, that's the stumbling point so often for people because we know the Sermon on the Mount says that we shouldn't take personal revenge. We should leave vengeance to God alone. Some guy cuts me off in traffic, and then I invoke Psalm 68 and say, you know, judgment come down on you, uh, you infidel. (laughs) But not only in what you say, but even in your attitude. I know you know this word, but one of my favorite German words is schadenfreude, which basically they say in one word, but takes us five or six or two sentences to explain. Wishing evil intent upon somebody else, so the guy that cuts us off, when they get pulled over by a police officer two miles down the road and we drive by and we say (laughs) oh yes isn't that delightful but the sermon on the mount really presses us (laughs) and so we have to understand how to pray and sing these imprecations and lie that so anyway back to belcher he goes on and i think this is really insightful on his part for getting back to those points which chalmers martin was stating with regards to understanding god's holiness he says not for personal revenge picking up with a quote but as part of our prayer for the establishment of the cause of christ we need the imprecatory psalms to remind us how serious it is to reject Christ, and how awful the nature of God's judgment will be. When Christ comes again as judge, the psalms of cursing will be accomplished. Full covenant curse will be executed against all those who have rejected him. If we are living for the glory of Christ's kingdom, rather, we will long for the day when his kingdom will be fully established on earth as it is in heaven, close quote. And just to add to that, that is something as we have discussed on the Salter Hymnal Committee on which I serve, which is a joint URC-OPC project to produce a new Salter Hymnal. Several of the men on that committee have expressed that very point that the imprecatory psalms are good for our mixed community and for our community of saints. And for use, they are a shocking reminder of the holiness of God. We live in an age of common grace. God does not mete out perfect justice. God tarries. God is long-suffering and patient. And, to quote Peter and Ezekiel, he doesn't delight in the perishing of the wicked. Let's be clear about that. However, there will come a day when that time is gone and common grace is eclipsed and God will come in wrath and everyone who has not confessed the need to him. And how much more those who are partaken of the Holy Spirit, as the writer of Hebrews says, insofar as they've been privy to the means of grace, raised perhaps in Christian families, families, etc., etc., they will be in a more serious situation yet. So these imprecatory psalms remind us in an age that is very lazy about reflecting on the holiness of God, that God is absolutely holy and just. As a church historian, I have always believed that the confessions of the Reformed churches are the best summary of biblical teaching, and I continue to believe that, and I think our seminary is strongly committed to that. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. We are increasingly in an evangelical world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and the wisdom of the fathers, the best students of Scripture in the history of the church, are encapsulated for us in the confessions, and we need to preserve that and know that and enthusiastically serve with a commitment to that. And I think it's a commitment that is more needed in our time than it's ever been needed. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. 
is there a way, Brian, as we look and think about these imprecatory psalms, where we can also aim them, if you will, at our own sins? Traditionally, in Western Christianity, we've said the Christian has three mortal enemies, sin, the flesh, and the devil. I don't disagree with anything you've said. I think that's extremely helpful, and I'm grateful for the material from Belcher. But is that an appropriate way to use an imprecatory psalm, or do you think we shouldn't go that way? The imprecatory psalms are really delivered to enemies outside the church, whether it be the Church of the Old Testament, so to speak, or whether it be in the New Testament period. Now, they might be people in the covenant community who are demonstrating that they really are enemies of God, but more often than not, they're the people that are bringing legal suit against the psalmist, true enemies of God. You know, Psalm 137, of course, is a classic example where the Hebrews enter in to show you the shocking reality of the psalm, talking about the Babylonians and made, you know, their babies' heads be bashed against the walls and that kind of thing. And so I think we need to be very, very careful, I'm thinking, along the lines of a pastor to begin to become introspective and reflexive about applying them to ourselves. What I would be comfortable with in light of our earlier conversation is saying they do awaken us out of our doldrums to the holiness of God and the demands of holiness. And so perhaps in that way, almost indirectly or obliquely, they could awaken us out of our torpor and our slumber. But I think really they're appropriate to the enemies of God, if you will, and to the enemies of the expansion of his kingdom and ultimately are those who curse Christ and his work. And so that's probably how I would respond to that. Well, I appreciate that. And that's helpful, especially because what we do with Scripture, we want to do in light of the intent of the text. We don't want to simply pick up a text and seize on it and then do things with it that are not, as we sometimes say, warranted by the text, by the intent, right? We want to always be anchored. In light of your question, one more area comes to mind, and that's that as pastors, we always want to use the Word of God in such a way that helps people's assurance. And the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about three pillars of assurance. There are the promises of God. There is what has been called in church history the so-called practical syllogism, whereby through introspection, we look at our works, we see evidence of God, working in our lives, and therefore we say, oh, I'm justified. And then lastly, the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, the rub with the practical syllogism and the danger of introspection is if you have tender consciences, then you can just as easily as we often do look at our own lives and say, what a lousy and destitute sinner I am. And if you only focus on that, which some Puritans did to the exclusion of those other two pillars, that can breed despondency and a lack of confidence. And so I think that's somewhat related to your question, that I would be very hesitant to encourage people to think about their own lives in light of the imprecatory psalms, except insofar as it awakens us to holiness for fear that I might be injuring people's assurance. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And finally, there's another kind of psalm, and it's an appropriate way to end the discussion about honesty and struggle with sin in the Psalter, and that is the genre, I guess, or the class of doxological psalms. I'm sure there are lots of other kinds of psalms, but in the time that we have, I thought it would be helpful to look at Psalm 150. And again, this is a psalm with which the listener may be familiar from worship, and it says, 
Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And then it goes on to exhort believers to praise him with various typological Old Testament instruments. And then finally, in verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How does the doxology of Psalm 150 speak to us about the blessing of being a Christian and the existential experience of the presence of God's grace in the life of the believer? That's a great and I think very profound question because I can't help but respond to your question and think about the overall structure of the Psalter. And as you draw attention to the last part of the Psalter, to think about what it's teaching us about the end of the Christian life and praise. The Psalter, no doubt, is arranged in general terms from laments to praise. If you look at book one of the Psalter, all the way up to about 42, you will see a high, high density of laments. If you look at book five of the Psalter, you will see a high density of praises. Now, there are undulations throughout the Psalter, but that makes a point with regards to the overall structure of the Psalter. And it's not just Psalm 150, but it's the last five Psalms that are all about praise there in the Psalter. And then on the other side, when you talk about individual laments, they most often have a kind of telos and a direction to them where they move from lament to praise. So that is, as the psalmist laments, and then he counsels himself by God's grace for his soul to be bolstered, and then to praise God, and then you have all these volative forms, Hebrew forms that are invoking his soul and his will to praise God. So my point is, individually, you see this often in Psalms, not all of them. Psalm 78, Brueggemann calls a shapeless scream because there's almost no rise at the end. But you get this overall direction, and that reflects the kind of direction you also see in individual psalms. This is a reflection. It's almost like, if you will, a small picture of the entirety of scriptures. In fact, in Psalm 149, almost at the end, let me make one more point about this, you see in Psalm 149 a battle. I think that battle is the final eschatological battle that we also see in the book of Revelation. And then you come to Psalm 150 and you have complete praise. Every single line, if I remember correctly, has an imperative to praise the Lord, and then the various things that you mentioned with the various instruments. Now, that begs a question with regards to what kind of tune should go with Psalm 150, because Psalm 149 is typological anticipation of the final eschatological battle. 150 is really the new heavens and the new earth. In modern terms, if we can invoke Tolkien— all the bloody garments have come off. We're now seeing Aragon, so to speak, <laughs> you know, anthropomorphically, of course, and I don't mean any disrespect to our Lord, but we're seeing a courtroom scene where everybody is in their courtly accoutrements and gowns, and there's no more bloodshed. It's the end. Everything is done. Well, this is all meant to mimic our pilgrim lives. So if we're honest with ourselves, as the psalmist so clearly is, then we see that our lives are full of suffering and tribulation and distress. Even when we're, in fact, becoming Christians may actually make our pilgrimages more difficult 
than if we weren't believers. But here's the end game. Here's the final analysis that we're going to be ushered in to God's presence and praise him forever and ever. We actually chose a tune early on in our work on a subcommittee on the Psalter hymnal that Psalm 150, a congruent tune to go with the text, is like rushing waters of a waterfall. When you look at some of the older Psalters, there's all this fanfare and trump, which you can understand they're getting uh, tipped off from the text itself. But we came to the conclusion that that was not the congruent tune that should be chosen for Psalm 150. Psalm 150 is peace, is resolution, is basking in the session of Christ and that the final battle is over. This is not him coming on his furious white steed with all his holy angels. Now, the next point has to do with in this life. So (laughs) we're thinking about the very end and we're thinking about the new Jerusalem. But what about being stuck here as earth dwellers in Tolkien's language again and as believers in very difficult life? And I think there's something very profound and indirect and oblique that happens in our sanctification when we praise God, even when we don't feel like praising God. And I recently have been reading in John Owen in his famous work, it's volume six on sin and sanctification, since we've been talking about sanctification. And he has a great page where he's talking about being sensitive to our own tempers and our own dispositions so that we would not be led into sin. And then he says something that directly relates to this. And let me just read you a couple of short quotes. First of all, he talks about the law in helping us to mortify our sins, so to speak. So he says the following, a man may, nay, he ought to lay in provisions of the law also fear of death, hell, punishment with the terror of the Lord in them. But these are far more easily conquered by sin, temptation, the devil, he means, than the other. Nay, they will never stand alone against a vigorous assault. They are conquered and convinced persons every day. Now, his point here is not for Christians, in light of our earlier comments, to be overly introspective and beating themselves up. We beat ourselves up all the time, and our conscience convicts us enough. We can hardly wait to get to church on Sunday to hear declaration of pardon and the gospel. But nevertheless, as Bob Strimple noted years ago, the fear of the Lord exists in the New Testament too. And we should be bearing in mind the consequences of ongoing habitual sin when we're struggling with trying to mortify and put to death that sin. But then he makes this point about praise that I think is spot on. And he says the following about a believer. And remember, this is in the context of striving to kill and mortify sin. Quote, But store the heart with a sense of the love of God in Christ, with the eternal design of his grace, with a taste of the blood of Christ, and his love in the shedding of it. Get a relish of the privileges we have thereby, our adoption, justification, acceptation, that's his word, with God. Fill the heart with thoughts of the beauty of holiness as it is designed by Christ for the end, issue, and effect of his death, and thou wilt in an ordinary course of walking with God, have great peace and security as to the disturbance of temptations, close quote. Now, I think that's a wonderful pastoral insight because he's really addressing the question, how do you avoid being led into temptation such that you are led into temptation where it swallows you up? And what he's saying is a cordial attachment to Christ 
praising God, as the Psalms lead us to do so often, is a great protection, a wonderful wall against the wiles of the devil, against our own flesh, against our own propensities and our own tempers, dispositions, which leads us into particular sins that we stumble in. But there's something about praising God on a regular basis and entering into his presence boldly as the apostle entreats us to do before his throne. He knows our sin. Be honest with him about our condition. Be honest with him about feelings and bitternesses and everything that may come to mind and then praise him. And in the midst of that, by his grace, he often delivers us. And that is a great stalwart protection against the wiles of the devil and also our own dispositions. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.